Uh, well, good morning to all of you. Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. I want to just say thank you. God bless you uh, for being the mothers in our lives. Uh, today, we're going to go back into our study in the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with us back to Philippians chapter 1. And today, we're going to dive deep into the section at the end of chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the Apostle Paul is ending this section uh, with these words. And uh, to understand what he's saying, you have to understand again the context. Context is so important when we're studying the Bible because it helps us understand what it's saying and what it means for us. So first of all, the context for the church in Philippi. Uh, you know some of this already, but first of all, Paul is writing from a prison in Rome uh, to this church in this city in northern Greece that is a Roman colony. In other words, it is a city that, that is all things Rome, only not in Rome. The people there have the privilege of being citizens, which not everyone did in that day. And they had this huge love for Rome, all that Rome stood for, what Rome was doing. They were like big fans. And in particular, they had a real affinity for the emperor so that they would regularly at public events declare that Caesar was Kyrios. Literally, Caesar was Lord and often Lord and Savior in their lives. And, uh, and this was something that everyone was expected to participate in. The problem that was developing is that within their midst, there was this small group of people who began to follow this Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And they would not declare that Caesar was Lord. In fact, they declared that the only Lord and Savior of their life was Jesus himself. And for the people of Philippi, that was a political embarrassment. That was an awkward thing. Those people were a little bit backwards and weren't quite, you know, tracking with where everyone was supposed to go. On top of that, those people who likely were citizens of Rome had now declared that they were actually citizens of heaven. They were people living in Philippi, but were really citizens of heaven, which made them in many ways un-Roman. This, this was a problem for the people of Philippi. This was the kind of thing that not only they were embarrassed, but began to be a, a bit of a threat to them. And so they began to apply pressure to the church in Philippi to conform to, to sort of settle in and to kind of go the way that everyone else was going. And th there was this pressure that was developing. And that's the context in which the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. The fascinating thing is that in some ways, the church in Canada isn't too far behind where the church in Philippi was. We also are in a time where there is increasing pressure on us as followers of Jesus to conform to to be pressured more and more to walk and to think and to act in the way that the culture around us expects us to. And you can begin to see examples of this in various places. You know, a couple of years ago, the government uh, was in the process of giving out grants to hire summer students. Uh, but a number of years ago, they put in what they called an attestation that every organization had to sign that they would support with the funds that they received, uh, not only Canadian rights, as covered in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but other rights, which included abortion. 
which meant that many churches, ours included, were not willing to sign that attestation because, of course, we don't hold that abortion is a right or a good thing in this nation. But the fact of the matter is, at the time, it was, uh, it was, it was actually stated that if you don't believe in abortion, that you are un-Canadian. Now, due to a lot of pressure, the government backed off from that position, but it was the beginning of this kind of process. Now, late, later on, in fact, about a year and a half ago in the province of Quebec, uh, the government passed what is known there as their secularism law. This law that stated that civil servants working for the provincial government, people like teachers, policemen, government lawyers, and others, were not allowed to wear uh, symbols of their faith while they were working. Now, that law clearly contravenes the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which grants every individual in this country the right to have religious freedom. However, uh, CBC just reported last month that a superior court judge had struck down the, the, this whole idea. Not, they hadn't struck down the law. Here's actually what they report. Uh, they reported that a superior court judge in Quebec ruled that Quebec's secularism law violates the basic rights of religious minorities in that province, but those violations are permissible because of the Constitution's notwithstanding clause. In other words, what the judge said is that though your charter rights to uh, freedom of religion are enshrined in the, in the Constitution, if a provincial government chooses to override those rights, there's nothing that can be done about it. Shocking. But in fact, the direction it's going. The, the message in Quebec is that if you want to be part of society, you need to leave your religion far behind because they want to be a secular society. One more example. Uh, currently, I'm not exactly sure where it is, but it's currently in our parliament uh, right now, uh, Bill C-6, which is a law that is uh, looking to be passed shortly uh, regarding conversion therapy when it comes to people changing genders. Now, that law seeks to ban conversion therapy, and uh, understandably so in some ways because of, of some very serious abuses that were done in the name of conversion therapy. So there's legitimacy to the law. However, the, the problem is, is that they have defined conversion therapy so vaguely and so broadly that if a, if a Christian, uh, if a pastor or a youth leader or just a, a Christian in general or if a parent were to tell their children uh, that uh, God's plan is not uh, best for them to transition from one gender to another, that could be classified as a felon, as a criminal offense in this country with all of the, the fines and the, the, the consequences of that, which is remarkable to think about. In fact, in all sorts of ways, in in big and little ways, there is this growing pressure in our society to curb and to limit the kind of beliefs that we have in the way that we live. The same like the pressure that happened in the church in Philippi. And so the question in that day and the question for us is, how then should we respond? How should we as followers of Jesus live in light of that kind of pressure? And that's what Paul is answering in these verses that we're looking at today. So this is the answer that he gives us. Verse 27, he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how should we respond to those pressures? The answer is that we ought to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's fascinating, the, the language that he uses. In the ESV here, there's a little footnote that says, here's another way that it can be translated. It says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the verb that he uses there speaks of living as citizens. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. Just as the citizens of Philippi live to give honor to Rome, 
They, they live in such a way that everything that they do honors Rome and what Rome is all about in the same manner. You who are followers of Jesus need to live in the world around you in a way that honors heaven. It honors God, honors Christ, because we are citizens of heaven. And we understand this. I mean, if you've ever been uh, a Canadian who's traveled outside of Canada, you know that we live in, we act in a certain way because of where we are. Around here, when we're here, we might be like, oh, Canada this and Canada that. But if you travel overseas, you become incredibly proud. Like, I'm from Canada. And we, we act a certain way. You know, we're not like, uh, you know, our friends to the south, even though we love our friends to the south, but they can sometimes be demanding and rude and think that they run the world. That's not us. So when we're overseas, we live, we, we, we live in a manner worthy of being Canadians, right? We're not demanding. We're not pushy. We're not, you know, some of those things. That's the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting for the church here. He says, look, in a world where there's increasing pressure on you as a follower of Jesus, you need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that sounds good. What, what exactly does that mean, Paul? Well, that's what he goes on to explain here in, uh, in these verses. Verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I, I may hear of you, number one, that you are standing firm in one spirit. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel means standing firm in what it is that we believe. You know, we as followers of Jesus should never waver in what we believe. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And we need to be able to defend why we believe it. Not, not in some, you know, contentious, nasty, calling names kind of way, but in just a very clear, very confident way wherein we say, this is what I believe. And I know it. And I'm standing by it as I do it. And much of what Paul is going to say from this point on kind of reflects an understanding in the ancient world of what the Roman military was like. Uh, he's going to use that imagery as we're going to see. And I think that he's using this imagery for two reasons. Number one, because he spends all day chained to a Roman soldier. So clearly he's thinking about this stuff all the time. And not only is he sharing about the gospel, but they're no doubt sharing about their life as a soldier and some of the things that they've experienced. But secondly, he's writing to the, the, the people in Philippi, many of whom were retired Roman soldiers. So they're going to understand this language. They're going to understand what it's all about. And when he says this, to stand firm in, in one spirit, that's a very Roman military concept. You see, the way that the Roman army set up their, their military was uh, that they would put men in groups of 80, uh, about 80, with a centurion. So we always think centurion means 100, but apparently either the Romans couldn't count or they just thought centurion meant 80 men. But they had about 80 men. But the, a centurion would take 80 men and divide them into three groups of about 20 to 30 per group. And the, the first group, the group that he would put on the front lines was the youngest soldiers, the most inexperienced soldiers, the young men who were energetic and powerful but didn't have a lot of experience. And those were the men who would face the brunt of the attack. When the opposing army came, they would face this fierce resistance from these young men that were so powerfully built and had all this passion and this energy to defend the cause and to support what Rome was doing. It's a powerful, powerful thing that the enemy came in, in contact with. But if somehow the enemy began to overwhelm that front line, a few yards behind them would be a second group of men. And these would have been soldiers in the prime of their lives. 
They would be a little bit older, a little bit more mature. They would have been in a battle or two, have some experience. And if, if the front line became overwhelmed, they would step forward into the fray and they would add the weight and the strength so that the Roman army would stand firm. And standing behind them a few yards were the veterans. These were the guys who had seen it all. I mean, they had been in multiple battles. They had the scars to prove it. And though they didn't have the energy and the strength of the young guys or, or the prime of their life like the, that second crowd, these guys were smart and they were wily and they knew what was coming and nothing rattled them. And if need be, they would step in as, as the third wave. And as a result, the Roman army stood in a way that, that you could not move them. And this is the picture that Paul paints for the church. He says, you as the church, we as the church need to stand firm in one spirit. And, and so when it comes to, to our faith and the pressures on it, the fact of the matter is that those who are on the front line are the young people in our church. You know, it's the young people who end up facing the most pressure to conform to the ideas of the world around us. Uh, they face it, I mean, when they go to university, four, sometimes five or six years of being uh, taught either subtly or not so subtly, this is how you ought to think. This is the, the worldview that you should have. And in fact, the pressure is increasing. You know, I, I was talking not long ago to someone who's, whose daughter was in one of the universities who just found out that in order to graduate, she and now it sounds like, if I understand it right, all of the students at the university have to take a class uh, that is pretty much political indoctrination. It's not about the, their discipline. It's it's an elective, but it's all about how they have to think about the, the world around them. And, it's, uh, and they have to pay for it, and if they don't pass it, they don't get their degree. Now, that's on the university side. Others don't go to university. Other young people just start out with a career. They, you know, get married and start a family. But there, too, there's all this kind of pressure to conform to the ideas of the world around them, to just kind of just go along with where everyone's going. And you know, for some of you, that's where you're at. You're just at that stage of life. You're just starting out, and that pressure is on you. And if that's you, I mean, you need to know what you believe, not because your parents told you or because, you know, where you need to know it because you've learned it, because you understand it. And not only do you believe it, but you understand why you believe it. And you know where you have those questions? You need to find someone and say, I got questions. I, I don't understand this. I have doubts about this. No shame in that, but you need to know so that not only do you know what you believe and why you believe it, but you can also begin to defend it because the pressure on you as a young person to conform is going to be intense. You're on the front lines of what's going on. But not far behind you should be those who are a little further down the road, those who are kind of in the prime of their life, those who have, uh, uh, you know, walked through university and followed Jesus, those who have started a career, those who have started a marriage and a family and are following Jesus. And for those of you who are at that stage, the call upon your life is to stand close behind those who are new to the faith, those who are younger, ready to step into the fray, ready to stand firm as they walk through life. Because, you know, you've had a few bumps along the way already. You've navigated some of those things. And so it's necessary. It's important that you develop real relationships with one or two others who are either younger than you, you know, in age or who are just younger than you in the faith so you can help them, so you can help them stand firm when, they, when the questions come because there are legitimate questions in this world about the Bible and what it means. So you can help them when they're 
their dream marriage turns out to be a little more tough than they thought it would be. So you can help them and encourage them when they meet some real bumps along the way and say, I didn't know that this was going to happen if I followed Jesus. And you say, oh yeah, it does. But you keep following Jesus because he's going to walk with you. The problem is too many people at the prime of their life say, hey, I'm too busy. I got my own job, my own career, my own family. When am I going to have time to do that? Listen, in the battle we're in, you, we can't afford for you to say that. We can't afford for you to say, I'm not... I'm too busy. We need you to stand firm because the pressure on the next generation is profound. So that doesn't mean you have to like get into some big formal mentoring relationship. It could be totally informal, but somewhere, somewhere you need to be developing a relationship with someone. It doesn't take a lot of time, barbecue with them or golfing once in a while or whatever. And just, just build the kind of relationship that allows them to ask questions and for you to ask some good questions. And, and for them to see your life, not your perfect life, rather to see your very real life as you follow Jesus and to encourage them as together they, they, I mean, as they follow Jesus and you do it with them. That's the second line. But the third line is those of you who are the veterans, those of you who have followed Jesus for years and years for much of your life. And you probably don't have the same energy and passion as the young people, but boy, you've got You've got just experience. You've seen things. You're not so easily rattled by the things that are coming because you just know that God is faithful, that Jesus walks with you through it all. And the call for you is to not just kind of check out. Like, hey, I did my piece. I put in my time. Now I'm just sitting back. You don't have to have the same energy and the same passion as the young crowd, but we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your insight. And we need you to step into the fray from time to time and and not, and not to take shots at the young crowd, but rather to encourage them and to strengthen them and to say, we're with you in the battle. We're with you in what Jesus calls us to do because, in fact, we're standing firm in one spirit. This is the picture that the Apostle Paul gives for the church in this passage. And for all of us, regardless of what stage of life uh, you're in, it's so important that you know what we believe, that you know what it means to follow Jesus and you understand why. And that's why this fall, uh, we're actually going to roll out a couple of new classes, not many, but a couple, just helping, again, lay those foundational understandings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I want to invite you, whether you're new to following Jesus, or if you've been following him for a long time, you just need a refresher, to take one of those classes and say, yes, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it, and this is how I can explain it and defend it in a world that continually puts pressure on me to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. To live worthy of the gospel means to stand strong in one spirit. Here's the second thing that the Apostle Paul calls for us to do. It's the second part of verse 27. He goes on to say this, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel means pressing forward together in community. You know, a Roman soldier was not just meant to stand his ground. The mission wasn't just survive the onslaught and then you're okay. A Roman soldier's mission was not only to survive the onslaught, the attack, but then to move forward, to take ground, to, to achieve the objective. And the same is true for us as a church. You know, the church here is not the country club where you just come, you're like, hey, we hear a few words, kind of encourage me, I feel good, and I go home. And nor is it simply a matter of us simply 
you know, surviving this onslaught of the culture around us and kind of afterwards a little tattered, a little wide-eyed and battered, but at least we're still standing. That's not what we're called to. Rather, the mission that God has given us, the dream, the vision that we have as a church is that our city, that this beautiful city that God has put us in would know Jesus. Our dream is that we would be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness that so many people, good people in this city would have the privilege of at least hearing about Jesus and understanding that he offers them life and hope and goodness. That means that we need to go forward. And, and, the, and the word that the Apostle Paul uses here when he talks about this is this idea of striving side by side. It's a, it's a military term. It's something that, that soldiers would do. I mean, in the heat of the battle, they're packed together side by side, and they're, I mean, they're sweating, and they're, they're grunting, and they're, I mean, they're working so hard at it. They're helping one another. And there's this sort of melee going on, and it's noisy, and it's messy, but the fact of the matter is they're striving side by side. And that's what we need to. That, that's the call that Paul has on our lives, that we also would strive side by side. And there can be setbacks along the way. There can be challenges along the way. And there's no question that we need to uh, stand uh, side by side in the middle of those challenges that come our way. You know, we need more men and women to stand up and to strive together with us for the sake of the gospel. We need more men and women who will say, I'm going to mentor somebody who's young in the next generation. We need more men and women who are going to, uh, who are going to join our teams, who are going to join our worship team and our production team and our, our children's ministry team and whatever other teams that we have that we can continue to see the gospel go forward. We need more men and women who are going to be intercessors, who are going to be on their knees praying for the ministry of the church, praying for the, the, the leadership of our church, praying for our city, praying for so many who don't know Jesus. We need more men and women who are willing to serve our city, expecting nothing in return, for, just for the sake of the gospel. We need more men and women who are going to love their neighbors selflessly for the sake of sharing the good news of the gospel with Jesus Christ. We need more people who are willing to step up and say, I'm going to join the fray. I'm going to be in the battle. It's not always going to be easy, but I'm going to strive side by side with others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something powerful when we do that. There's something powerful about doing it together. You know, in that day, if the enemy could get in and scatter those Roman soldiers, they could rout the entire army because everyone was on their own. But when they labored together, when they struggled side by side, man, it became so powerful. And not only did they withstand the, the pressure against them, but they actually moved forward and took ground in the mission that was given to them. It's the second thing that we're to do if we're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, here's the, here's the third thing that he calls us to do. Again, if you start back at the beginning of 27, he says this, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, first of all, that you're standing firm in one spirit. Secondly, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And thirdly, not frightened in anything by your opponents. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel means, thirdly, that we are not to be intimidated. You know, the word that Paul uses here is a word uh, that is elsewhere uh, translated as spooked. In other words, he says, look, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means that we're, we're not fearful. We don't get spooked every time something new happens. We're like, oh, no, what's happening now? And ultimately, we're not 
intimidated. And again, one of the attributes of the Roman army that, that always stunned and really dis, you know, disconcerted the enemy is when they would begin to kill Roman soldiers and they thought that they were going to sort of rout the army, they were always stunned that the Roman soldiers that were still standing were almost cold and inhuman in their willingness to keep fighting on. Roman soldiers, when the guy on their right was killed and the right guy on their left, rather than turning and run, would continue to battle. And the reason was, there's actually two reasons for it. The first is that the greatest fear in a Roman soldier's life the greatest fear was not the enemy that were around them, but rather was their commanding officer. You see, the Roman army had strict discipline. If you stepped out of line, boy, they, they came down hard. Everything from if you lost the, the, you know, the, the legionnaire thing, the pole that you carried into battle. Sorry, I can't remember what it's called. But if you lost that, I mean, as punishment, you would have to stand eating while all of the rest of the guys in the army were sitting so that everyone could see you're the guy who screwed up. Everything from that to public floggings if you disobeyed an officer. Two, uh, downright stonings. If you fell asleep as a soldier on sentry duty, on guard duty, they would grab you, they would call you out, and your own, your own friends, the, the other soldiers, would pick up stones and they would literally stone you to death because the fact that you fell asleep, the fact you fell asleep put the whole army at risk. On top of that, if they found you dead on the battlefield from a wound in your back rather than from your front. They would bury you without honor and your family would live in shame for the rest of your life. You see, the Roman army had this strict discipline and there was no greater fear than of disappointing or going against what your commanding officer said. It's the first reason why they just kept going when everyone else around them was falling. But the second reason was this, that, that if they were... If they were heroic, if they did what they, you know, more than they were expected to, they received medals and awards. They received extra rations. Uh, they received land. They received uh, cattle. I mean, there was all sorts of honor and rewards for them being bold and courageous. And therefore, a Roman soldier was not easily intimidated. The Apostle Paul picks up on that. He says, us too. Now, in our case, it's not, we, you know, we aren't intimidated because we fear the punishment of God. That's not the message here. That's not how God operates. Uh, rather, the reason why we as followers of Jesus should not be intimidated, no matter the pressure that comes upon us, is because we have a solid, biblical, future-oriented view of life. And to understand what that looks like, we need to go back to what the Apostle Paul was teaching earlier. We need to imitate Paul. Because Paul said, this. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, for live to Christ, that's a present orientation. He's like, if I live right now, my orientation is like present. And that's a good thing. I'm, I'm good to go. But he also had a very strong future orientation, which is to die is Christ. So that meant that he, he knew what the future held for him. He had a very clear and biblical understanding of what heaven was all about. So that meant that he could, he could stand before Nero, I mean, the craziest of emperors, without being intimidated and proclaim the gospel because he had a very clear understanding of the present, but a very clear, biblical, biblically-oriented view of the future. The problem with too many Christians is that we don't have a very good future orientation. We don't have a good understanding of heaven. Too many of us think that heaven is this fuzzy idea of like, 
wearing robes in an eternal worship service, you know, with a five-minute bathroom break every three hours. And, and it's just not that exciting. But if we had a biblical understanding of a new heaven and a new earth and what God calls us to and the kind of relationships we'll have and a physical body and all the things we'll do, if we had that kind of a proper understanding, then we would be like Paul. We could say, to live is Christ, here is good. But to die, to, to suffer, all that is okay because it's even better. You see, today, too many Christians, it's too easy for us to get so fearful of what the future holds. I mean, we're fearful of what happens, you know, to our kids as the culture keeps going this way. What will happen to our church? What happens if we lose our tax-exempt status as a church? What happens if the government passes more laws limiting how we can, can you know, live? What, what happens if they begin to censor what we put on the internet, on our social media? What happens if they limit how we can dress or the symbols that we have? I mean, we could just get on with what if, what if, what if, and we become so fearful. But, but if we have a biblical understanding of not just the present but the future, then we can say, live as Christ, die as gain. And that becomes a way that we, we can't be intimidated then. then. Then we keep going forward. And in fact, uh, this is the third part of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It means we stand firm, we press forward together, and that we're not intimidated by what we do. And Paul goes on then to say this. He says, look, if that's what you do, if you live in a manner worthy of, of Christ, three things result. Here's, here's the first thing that flows out of that. Second, verse of verse, second part of verse 28. He says, if you live this way, this is a clear sign to them, your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That's fascinating. If we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's a sign to our opponents. It's a sign that they're going to lose and that ultimately we're going to win. You know, in the year 1984, five years after the Islamic Revolution swept through Iran, a guy named, uh, named Mehdi Dibaj, there we go, Mehdi Dibaj, uh, was imprisoned by the Iranian government for apostasy. He was imprisoned simply because he converted from Islam to following Jesus. 1984, he was thrown in prison. And get this, he spent 10 years in prison without a trial. Finally, in 1994, he was brought to trial. And here's what he writes as part of his written defense. Near the end, he says this. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel. And I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Listen, you can't beat that. It doesn't matter what kind of pressure you put on people who have that kind of trust and belief in Jesus. It's impossible. The way he lives is a sign that ultimately they're going to lose and God is going to live. Now, in his case, uh, he was uh, sentenced after his trial to execution, but as a result of huge pressure, international pressure, he was released from prison, only to not surprisingly be murdered in a park not long after, along with two other Christians who had also been recently released from prison. But the fascinating thing is that was 1994. 
25 years ago. And yet, and yet, over those 25 years, the gospel of Jesus has grown in Iran in unbelievable ways so that the leaders of, the Islamic leaders of Iran are openly talking about the threat that the gospel is to the Islamic revolution. Isn't that fascinating? You know, when the church in Iran lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, when they stand firm on what they believe, and when they strive quietly, but when they strive together for the sake uh, of the gospel, side by side, and when they're not intimidated, the gospel goes forward. And you know, we in this country, we need to take a lesson from the church in Iran. So first thing. Here's the second thing that Paul goes on to say in verse 29. He says this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, when we live when we live in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is an opportunity for us to identify with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And um, uh, you have to see here where, where, where Paul says, it has been granted to you. Uh, that word that he uses in, in Greek is actually the word grace. In other words, what Paul is writing in this verse is, it is God's grace to you. It is his kindness to you, not only that you should believe in Jesus, but that you should also suffer on his behalf. Now again, Paul's hearkening back to this Roman army type of thing, which is this. If you go into battle and you end up with a scar, if you end up wounded in battle, it is an honor that you suffered. You, you come out of the battle and say, I mean what I say. I, I was in the thick of it. I was on the front. I mean, I was battling for what we believe for. And if, the, if your commanding officer if the emperor himself comes out of the battle with scars and with wounds and with blood on his, on his clothes, you're like, it's an honor for me to have also suffered like my commanding officer, like my emperor did. As opposed to to come out of the, the battle and the emperor's, you know, wounds and scars and blood on his, you know, and it dirty everywhere. And you come out like untouched, clean, your clothes perfect. It's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of like you were, you know, in the bushes having a coffee while everyone else was out having battle. So Paul is saying to suffer for Jesus is, a, is, an, is an honor. He's suffering for your commander-in-chief, for, for your Lord and Savior. And in fact, that happens in some ways these days. You know, I know of, I know of at least two teachers uh, whose career did not advance in particular schools because of their faith in Jesus. Now, Every time that a Christian doesn't get a promotion doesn't mean that it's because of their faith in Jesus. That's, I mean, let's be careful that we don't say, oh, I didn't get a promotion, it's because I'm a Christian. But in those cases, the evidence seems pretty obvious that that was the case. Now, no one said to them, this is because you're a follower of Jesus. That would end up in lawsuits and all sorts of troubles there. But the fact of the matter is, this kind of thing happens. And it hurts, right? I mean, a wound, it hurts. But it's also an opportunity us to identify with Jesus. And there's an honor in that. There's a grace in that to say, you know, just like our Savior suffered, I too have paid a price to follow after Jesus. When we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it allows us to identify with Jesus. And then finally, in verse 30, Paul goes on to say this. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, hey, you know what's happening to you guys? It's happening to me. You guys are in northern Greece, in Philippi. I'm in Rome. But it's the same thing. And, and here's the last part of this whole thing. 
When we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, it, it allows us the privilege of walking in solidarity with the universal church. It allows us to also experience the kinds of things that the church around the globe is experiencing and, and throughout history. In fact, the other day I was, uh, I was talking to someone not from our church, uh, but another uh, Christian who said to me, he said, uh, you know, I recently visited uh, one of the illegal churches in the Lower Mainland. And by that, he meant he went to one of the churches that is remaining open during the pandemic. Now, whether you would agree or disagree with the fact that they're staying open during the pandemic, it was a jarring statement to hear that somebody in Canada went to an illegal church in Canada. I mean, two years ago, it would have been unheard of to have an illegal church gathering in this country. And yet, that's common for many Christians around the world, not just this past year, but for years, for decades, they have been in illegal church gatherings. And you know, by God's grace, we're not there in this nation. Let's pray that we don't end up in that kind of a place. But the fact of the matter is that when we do suffer for the sake of the gospel, when we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it allows us the privilege of walking in solidarity with so many Christians around the world and throughout history. You know, the battle that we're involved in, it's a battle that, that the church around the world stands together in. But here's the good news. Here's, here's the hope that we have, the confidence that we have. In the end, God wins. In the end, his will will be done. His kingdom will come, both on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we battle, as we live in this pressure that the world is putting on us, let's make sure, let's make sure that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we stand firm, that we strive together side by side for the sake of the gospel, and that we never live in fear. Let, let me pray for us as we end. God, we thank you that we, we walk in the footsteps of those who have gone before us. God, we thank you that all that we experience, whatever we're going to experience next, is nothing new in the history of your people. And we thank you that above all, God, you are in the middle of it all, that you never leave us and never abandon us. And God, that ultimately you are victorious, that you will be victorious. And so we stand confidently in that. Father, may we live with an eyes both to our present situation, to what's happening in our culture around us, but also with our eyes on heaven, knowing that in the end we will, we will have that eternal with you, eternity with you. So God, meet us where we're at today, we pray. Help us as a church as we walk forward in these days to live in a manner worthy of being citizens of heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.